Welcome to Behind the Bob, Diary of a Comms Director with me, Carrie-Anne Wade. This podcast is all about developing communications leaders of the future and supporting you to grow and thrive in your comms career. You'll hear from me about my experiences and insights, and there might even be a special guest or two popping up. So I hope you enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Behind the Bob and you will be very happy to hear this is another one of those episodes with a special guest popping up to have a conversation with and I'm really delighted that this conversation is with the fabulous Shaq Rafiq. So Shaq, welcome to the podcast. I will let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you before we get into the conversation. Thank you, Carrie Ann, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to be part of this podcast series. Hello, my name is Shaq. And I'm the Associate Director for Communications and Involvement for Bradford District and Craven Health and Care Partnership, which is our fantastic place-based partnership within the fantastic West Yorkshire Integrated Care System. I can vouch for the fact that it's fantastic because I was lucky enough to be invited to visit you up in Bradford a week or so ago. And you have a fabulous team and Bradford is definitely a brilliant place to be. So I'm hoping that I get a return visit at some point, Shaq. But... <laughs> Most definitely, Carrie-Anne, and you'll be very welcome to, oh. to visit us again. Thank you. And we've known each other for a little while now through the NHS communication community. And I think we've done webinars and various other things together. So this won't be the first of these sorts of conversations that we've had, but it's perhaps the first that we've recorded in in this way. I'm really interested and I did get a sneak preview last week when I met up with you about where you started out in your communications career. But it would be really nice to hear from you a little bit about your career as a comms professional so far. So could you enlighten us on your journey? <laughs> Absolutely, carry on. I think this is the hardest thing to do, isn't it? To talk about yourselves. I think it's worth saying I've been in the NHS 15 years now. So it almost feels like that's been my life for a while. But prior to that, I've worked in the community and voluntary sector for a university. So my first job was Oxford Brooks University. And I've done a public relations degree throughout that time. I've worked in some fantastic teams with some fantastic managers and some fantastic leaders. That's given me the chance to grow and learn lots of skills. I feel now I've got that technical experience in all things you'd expect at this level when you of leadership in communications and involvement. So I'm not going to talk about what I've done because I just find that really embarrassing a cringy. little bit. But it's a bit it cringy, is. isn't it? We're uh, not good at communicators no, at talking uh, about ourselves, doing our own PR. No, so I'm really sorry. I don't know how to summarise, but I've just had a, I feel fantastically lucky and privileged to have excelled in my career with the support of some brilliant people. And I know through this conversation, we'll talk about some of the barriers that maybe I've come up against and I've either realised consciously at the time or on reflection, realised this is probably what may be stunted progress, which it feels like it's accelerated more recently. Yeah, you said you started in a university comms role and you obviously have got your 15 year in the NHS. Before we move on, what did attract you to work in public sector communications? Was it a conscious choice or something that just naturally happened for you, Shaq? It was a conscious choice. I've always been, I would say, values and community led and actually going reflecting back on my career. I say that, but I was actually going to do law, which is probably the complete opposite of what I've just said now. However, I fell into public relations and did a public relations degree. And then I decided once I'd done my degree and realized this is the field I wanted to work in, it was clear then actually law would have been the wrong choice. I would have regretted it because I would have been working probably with a commercial mindset 
And whilst I was doing my degree, I did two placements and one was at the West Yorkshire Police and one was at the National Media Museum, both in their own right, public bodies, people, not profit first. And from there on in, it, it was clear that I wanted to be in the public sector. Interesting enough though, carry on. I didn't know, believe it or not, that you get a communications role within the NHS until I applied for my first role within the NHS. It's only because I've been working at this community development organization and we held a session on health inequalities and lo and behold in this room, there's, and there were one or two people who worked in communications in the NHS and I thought, that's interesting. I'm going to have a look to see if there's any opportunities. Isn't um, that interesting? It is interesting. And there's a bit of me that thinks, I guess, why would people viable kind of career choice for them? And I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit later. But I'm really glad that you found out that comms in the NHS was a thing because we've been lucky to have you in that space for those 15 years. But it sounds like very much values driven and like it's not about the commercial stuff, not profit first, but people first is what's kept you in the public sector yeah. space. Although carry on, I must say for the wider communications field, I do understand the contribution and the value that all sectors bring to society. And when we talk about equalities and inequalities, one of the most important things is lifting people out of uh, poverty, um, issues related to socioeconomic progress. So I, I recognize the valuable contribution that businesses make. So it's more of a conscious decision for me not to work in that field. Well, that's not to say it, it doesn't have a significant contribution to society as a whole. Absolutely. Thank you, Shaq. So you mentioned it briefly when we started this conversation, but one of the things I was interested in is whether or not you have felt that there has been anything that's been a barrier or a challenge for you in your career to date. And if you could talk a little bit about that, if that's the case. Yeah, so there's probably an ongoing barrier that I would say all of us would relate to, and that's imposter syndrome. Am I really supposed to be in this room? Do I really know what I'm talking about? Are my ideas the right ones? Will they be heard? I speak clearly with a very broad Yorkshire accent. I've not ever been minded to change it. I know. Good, good on you. Exactly. Exactly. And I know the background I come from, and I'm really proud of that. But sometimes you feel, is that going to hold me back in certain environments? I don't have those. Well, I suppose through my career, I've developed those networks, but I've not had them immediately to rely on. So I think that really. I don't know, there's a psychological block sometimes from an imposter syndrome perspective. And then I think early on in my career, great managers, as I've said, but me, myself, have probably not been brave enough to speak as often. I know people will be very surprised when they hear that <laughs> I don't speak loudly or often I do, but maybe there's opportunities where I've not done so. And it was a really useful piece of advice I got from a former chief executive. If you had the privilege of working under them, she made a really clear the times where she knows there's a contribution it's waiting to come from me, but it doesn't arrive because for whatever reason, you don't want to share it out of the fear of getting it wrong or making a mistake. So that again takes you back into that imposter syndrome and the worry of making a mistake. And now I'm not as worried about making mistakes. In fact, I love but, making them because they give me something to learn from. Absolutely. And do you know what? It's really refreshing. And I will say this to hear a man talk about imposter syndrome. Because quite a lot of the conversations that I have around self-belief and confidence and all link that kind of sense of an imposter syndrome of sorts generally tend to be with women. And I think it's something that is seen as a labour is put onto women who are not confident in the workplace. So actually, it's, it is really refreshing, refreshing and quite insightful, I think, to from as a man, Shaq, that imposter syndrome is something that you're conscious of and has, has perhaps affected you in your career. Definitely thank you for sharing that. And I absolutely 
from what you said, have so many conversations with communications professionals who don't think they have the same right as someone else to be in the room and that they don't have an equal voice. Yeah, it seems to be something that's quite prevalent in our profession. And I'm not sure what we address some of that. Maybe it comes with age and experience. And I don't know if I say wisdom, I'm not sure how wise I am, but that you just in the end think, I'm just going to say it and share my opinion. But there are things I think that hold you back from doing that. And it seems to be something that communicators say a lot. Uh, Most definitely. And I think that's a great point around others who will have similar experiences because societally, whilst we think we've made significant progress, if I talk about protected characteristics and how far we've progressed, actually, there've been in some instances, small baby steps with a lot of gesture politics around them. And that's my worry. So how do we make sure those who feel like this are brought into plain view so others can understand what proper allyship means? And it goes beyond saying the right things. It's doing the right things. So I think the point you make is a really good one. Karen, if I may, the other thing that really helped me, and I never used to fully understand the reasons why you would develop certain developmental programs for certain cohorts. I never really fully understood it. I just think it was wrong for whatever reason. But then I went on a leadership course called Stepping Up and I was done by the Leadership Academy and it was specifically for people from ethnically diverse backgrounds. And then when I went on that course, I recognized and listened to the experiences of others and immediately it resonated with me, maybe not to some of the extremes I was listening, I felt in one sense happy that I didn't quite have those extremities, but at the same time I felt sad for the people that did. But once I went on that course, for me, there's two things. One, don't want to be having that same conversation with myself in a year's time, sort yourself out and what you're going to do about it. And secondly, how are you going to work with others to make sure they recognize you're now on a journey and you don't want to carry on doing great tactical work, but then always continuing to be at that level. So I went to break probably what I felt was a glass ceiling, whether or not there was, I'm not sure. And I wouldn't want anyone to think I, I feel there was, but just internally it felt like one. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it brings us on to that bit of the conversation I wanted to have around the kind of how we can start to reduce some of the barriers that people might recognise that you've described and might be experiencing in their careers. And also, I guess, a bit whose role is it to do some of that? And I love what I'm hearing from you, Shaq, is that quite a lot of it for you, it feels like it's your role to do some of that and role model it and talk about and communicate and educate others about your own experience in the hope that it helps other people. But yeah, I would be interested to know in terms of those barriers, whether perceived or real around the glass ceiling and some of that imposter syndrome stuff, like what can we be doing to challenge some of that and improve things for other communicators? Yeah, carry on. I think that point you make about how how do we break through that glass ceiling and some of the barriers, I think the other thing to remember is whilst you're a role model or a perceived role model and carry on, you're one of those people I admire so much in terms of what you do and how much I learn from you. Oh, you right back at um, you, but thank you. <laughs> I'll take that. And, and there's others who I could easily mention on, on, on this podcast, and I'm careful not to because I'll probably miss someone and they'll think, why, why have you? And they'll you? be, how rude, why didn't yeah. you say me? <laughs> but I think when you're in that position as a role model, that creates a, a separate pressure in its own right, because I'm here to represent me. I can't represent a whole community, whatever community you want to think I'm from. And also, um, the expectation is you will somehow be the only one 
that drags other people into this space. No, we have to work on it together. So that's something I would say first and foremost in terms of breaking down those barriers. And I think if we think about those forums and networks and meeting environments where those decisions are made, how willing are we to accept new ideas and new ways of thinking? And if I think about a different form of diversity, neurodivergent thinking, so creativity in our industry is really important. Why do we always hear hire people that may look sound, think like us, and not think broader than that? And then in a meeting setting, if someone's expressing an idea, maybe not in the same way you would, listen to it first, understand where they're coming from, and understand that they bring a lived experience with it usually that will give you the insight into a community, but they're not the sole representative of that community, but it just gives you an opportunity to challenge your thinking. And I would say mentorship's amazing. I've had some brilliant mentors. In fact, I will mention three because I, I think I have to. One's Jane Westmoreland in Leeds, just an amazing communicator and just an amazing person who's always given me time when I've needed it. Ranji Kyle, who you'll know really well, again, ditto, always there for me. My current mentor is John Holden, who retires soon. And I just wanted to give him a shout out to say in the last sort of year, 18 months, his guidance has been immense. Brilliant. Oh, thank you for the shout, shout out. And I think I'm going to have to invite Ranji onto the podcast because this is the second episode I've recorded where Ranji's had a shout out for something different in the last episode. But I think that says something about the impact that he's having particularly in this space around the profession and communication in the NHS in particular. But I think it's actually really important. And I know we joked saying you can't shout out everybody because for fear that you'll miss someone and then they'll be offended. But I think that opportunity to express gratitude and thank people and actually give people that name check sometimes is really important because I don't think people often realise how much of an impact they have on others in terms of their development and their growth and supporting them. So it's really nice to be able to do that. I think it was a good call to give yeah. them the shout out, Shaq. If I may, the other people, just if I, when I'm thinking about this, it's, I'm going back to that thing about when I've said, look, I've got an idea, it might be a little bit risky. Do you want me to take the risk? Some of my current and previous line managers, really quickly, Fran Hewitt, Carolyn Walker, who's now retired, Jen Drury, who's my current line manager, Mel Pickup, Chief Exec for Bradford Teaching Hospital and the place space partnership lead. They back me and they back me every single time. But sorry to add a few more names to that list, but I think it's important when I talk about allyship and how do you break down those barriers, people believing in you. Are you a communications professional who would like to feel more confident in your career choices? Perhaps you'd like to be more intentional in the way you approach your work life. Our Cats Pajamas Thrive Programme is a 12-week structured online programme that supports communications professionals to grow and thrive. It's a safe space for discussion, action and accountability, all with the aim of helping you to thrive as a communicator and as a leader. The next Thrive Programme starts on the 1st of September and if you'd like to find out more or reserve your place on the programme, visit the website, catch up with us on the socials or drop us a line. love that and if I may just explore a couple of the themes that you've talked about there because you've talked about that diversity of thinking actually and how that's really important not to end up in a space where there's just lots of people like you and therefore creating that echo chamber and not having that challenge and that diversity of thinking but you also just mentioned risk and people 
having your back and listening to you when you've come up with something that feels a bit risky. And I just, I think there seems to be a sort of connection there between creating that diversity of thinking in your workforce, in your communications team, in your leadership team, and that ability to feel like you can take more risks. And that feels like something quite important to to highlight. Yeah, absolutely. And I think taking risks is, it's not taking a risk that's so big that you know it's going to potentially have a detrimental effect to the running of a business. It's more of a calculated risk and weighing up the pros and cons and making it clear because my job isn't to say, look, I'm going to take a risk. It might cost us all our budget for this year. No, it's, this is the risk. Here's my thinking behind it. And this is where it might take us, but this is the potential knock-on effect. So making it really clear what that risk is and making it a calculated risk. And to get to the position you're in, for example, carry on, you'll have had to take a lot of risk, but you've also had to demonstrate professional attitude and being able to deliver the core business. Once you can deliver the core business, then you've got the opportunity to think about risk. And equally importantly, how do you make sure people around you think creatively and think differently and back them when they want to do something a little bit different or challenge them in a more positive way to say, look, if you do this, you might want to think this through or I like the idea. However, these are some of the things from my experience when I've taken the risk and this didn't quite work, but I'm sure you've got a way of finding a a solution. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of what you talked about, I think, in terms of maybe reducing some of the challenges that we face or supporting others, maybe it's more about supporting others to achieve their best potential than reducing some of those barriers. feels a lot about relationships and having those good, strong relationships with people who are supportive and Part of that support isn't always about just stroking your ego, is it? And saying how brilliant you are. Some of it is, like you say, about that challenge and helping you to think differently. Maybe that's something that you've not been used to. So, yeah, I'm really interested in lots of what you've had to say in that space. We've talked a little bit about challenges. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to address in that space of sort of challenge from your comms career or more broadly in the comms space before we move on. I think it's the one that you'll hear from colleagues who come from whichever diverse background you, you associate with, is sometimes not seeing people like you in certain positions, not seeing people in this career can be quite difficult. Mm. So when I started, I think even now the percentages are about 90 odd percent white people in, in public relations. But when I started, it probably would have been even more towards 100%. So yeah. there's been a shift, but not probably a significant shift. And I remember doing my course, I was one of the first, but I don't think that's a, I don't think that's something that we need to beat ourselves up with. It's more of, we know where we are now and it's for people like me to think about how do I work with people like yourself and others to change that dynamic. So I see that as an opportunity. So whilst it's a challenging environment, it presents itself with lots of opportunities. Yeah. And I think you're right about doing something about it because I feel like particularly in the NHS, which we've both been in a long time. We've had lots of conversations about the fact that our profession isn't particularly diverse. And I know there's, but it's very female heavy in the NHS generally, but in NHS com, as you say, probably a lot of white females actually, but some of our most senior comms roles are probably filled with white males. There's so much that in that about how undiverse our profession feels, but actually I feel like we do lots of talking, but maybe not the action. So actually, if some of that is just about getting different voices out there and talking about roles in in the profession and in the leadership space in the NHS. 
through lots of different people, I think that's really important. Like you see then people are more likely to have the opportunity to see someone who resonates with them and they think, oh, if they can be in that space, I can be too. And it's important that people see that. I like your optimism and reframing of some of those conversations that have probably turned into a, bit a talking shop into actually how can this be an opportunity to do things differently in this space? Yeah, and I think just on that point, carry on, we usually get into a bit of a cycle where we just say things aren't progressing. And I've mentioned things haven't progressed as quickly, but they have progressed. So what do we need to do to accelerate some progression? So 10, 15 years from now, one of my children will be having that sort of conversation. Hopefully they choose a career in communications, but if not, in whichever field they go into, they, they can see a difference in, in the makeup of both their team and then all the leadership structures. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about challenges that you faced or that you've perceived to have faced in your career, but I'm also interested to know what some of the highlights of your public sector career have been, Sham. It's probably a hard way to get you to focus on because I know it's cringy talking about yourself and all the good stuff, but I know you've done brilliant things. So are there any particular highlights of your career to date we'd be happy to share to hopefully inspire and encourage other people? I think for me, there's been lots of opportunities to do first and first for the right reasons. So we, we spoke about risks and the risk reward payoff. So we want, we were the first NHS organization at that time to roll out an internal work platform, an internal comms platform called Workplace by Facebook. That felt like quite a significant achievement because we, anyone who works within our field will know that the right challenges we get from information security and information governance because it's their job to keep our information safe. So to, to, find a solution that actually worked alongside all the guidance that we've got in place to keep information safe and secure. Felt like a significant achievement through to winning awards for some of our behavior change campaigns, but they're not just being led by me. And I think that's the most important thing is when other people have led on campaign that you've just provided that guidance. That makes me really proud in terms of seeing people develop. And I've, we've had some brilliant work placement students who've gone on to some fantastic careers. So I don't want to make it about me. I could easily make it about me, but I think sometimes you just have to recognize the great people around you. And as you said, you've met my team. What a great team. And when we talk about taking calculated risks, my recruitment policy is always to go by attitude as well. Attitude. The attitude is right. And maybe you haven't got the full skill set and it might be a stretch for you. I'd rather take that risk knowing that you'll bring bags of potential, bags of enthusiasm, enthusiasm and bags of new ways of thinking. I love that. And I think that's one of the things that's really brilliant about you, Shaq. I'll do the embarrassment for you so you haven't had to self-embarrass. I think you are such a, such an advocate and supporter of people developing themselves and taking chances on people that perhaps maybe don't feel like they've got quite the right level of experience or perhaps in another team might not be recruited because they don't meet all of, tick all of the boxes on the form around kind of qualifications and academic background and level of experience. I think the fact that you are willing to what some people might see as taking a chance on others, you provide those opportunities for people to really grow and thrive and do that in your team. And I know beyond when you're not able to offer those opportunities, you're very supportive of colleagues progressing for themselves personally. You don't seem to hold people back just because you perhaps don't have the opportunities for them in your team. I think you should definitely feel very proud of how you support the development of communicators in your team and beyond in, in the area that you work. So I'll thank you on behalf of all of those people that you've had a positive impact for, Shaq. Thank, thank you, Carrie Ann. And <laughs> yeah, that means I can stop talking about myself. <laughs> Absolutely.
conversations that I know we've had in lots of different places and with different groups of people is around how do we get fresh talent? And it links to the point that you've just made, not always recruiting people based on their experience or sort of academic ability, but actually about attitude. How do we attract more people into a career in communications in the public sector? What do we do to make that more attractive to people? And you said you didn't even know it was an option 15 years ago when you joined the NHS. So is there stuff we could be doing to make it more attractive for people? Most definitely. So if we think about our sort of business function, and it is a strategic and important business function of communications and dare I say involvement as well, because I see them as being part of one function. One of the things I've seen recently that is the right thing to do is, for example, the PRCA have set up a school's ambassador scheme. And I know through NHS 75, there's similar ambassador schemes where you talk about careers and there's an opportunity for us as communicators to get on board with some of those ambassador schemes and be ambassadors ourselves. I know it takes time out of the diary, but we could be unearthing some big talent who would not consider communications and involvement as a career and certainly not in the public sector. So if it's not in the NHS, I'd be more than happy to see them in the local for OTO with our VCS partners or with any of our sort of blue light services. So that's, I think, a way of doing it. The work you do around role profiling, equally important. And then I think this is where today we've seen the launch of the workforce plan. I have to confess, I haven't read all 152 pages of it. But one of the headlines, interesting enough, is around apprenticeships and apprenticeships offering a route into some of the medical careers. I'm pretty certain that we don't use our apprenticeship levy well enough across the NHS. So there might be opportunities there. It will take time sometimes to coach and guide people at the start of their career. And then using that apprenticeship levy would then take me on to my third point, which is probably a longer conversation with our HR and recruitment teams. And this is where I see things like you must be educated to such and such a level. I know from where I grew up in the school I went to, there's some amazingly talented people. Academia just didn't appeal to them. So they're never going to have those qualifications. But if you said to them, are you creative? Can you think of ideas? Can you help us get, if you present a challenge, they'll have some amazing solutions. How do we make it easier for people to get into roles. And then we talk about progression. I think that's a separate conversation, but one, getting people in as as we need to and then progressing them. And there's existing examples of work that's gone on. So the Mayor of London has got a, a comms traineeship scheme, really clear. They've obviously sought legal guidance and they're looking for people from ethnically diverse communities because there's a real challenge. Similarly, there's a Taylor Bennett Foundation who do similar things. So I think it is being, dare I say, a little bit creative with recruitment whilst being within the letter of the law as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to be a HR basher because I know my colleagues in HR often get a really hard time. But I do sometimes think the process and the procedural stuff that we put around recruitment doesn't give us sometimes the flexibility and the freedom to think differently about the types of people that we might recruit and how we might go about doing that. So I think you've got you've made some really brilliant points and got some good ideas that actually if we could do that consistently across the NHS, I think would make a real difference to making a role in NHS communication more attractive to people. And one of the other things that I think you do brilliantly, and it seems to be in your blood shack, is that whole partnership approach. So you saying, actually, even if we can't keep these people or attract them to NHS comms, there is 
local authority, voluntary sector, everything that happens across the community to support improved sort of health and social care outcomes. Comms plays a big role in that and it doesn't have to be a comms role in an NHS organisation. There are other public sector careers out there for people. So I think that's an important point to make too. And I think you've touched on it a little bit in what you've said around your examples from the London Mayor and Taylor Bennett. But do you think there are things we can do to encourage more diversity? Because we've talked a lot about our profession in this conversation being a heavily white, heavily female based profession in communications in the NHS. Is there stuff we could be to shift that dial or do you feel it's not possible? Nothing is impossible as far as I'm concerned. Where there's a will, there's a way. I think it goes back to what I said right at the beginning. We have to move from being just vocal allies to being active allies. And that means doing things differently. If anything, if in 15 years time, we can say we've had at least 10 people join our profession who don't have five GCSEs, don't, aren't educated to degree level. That for me would be an amazing success because that shows that we thought differently about recruitment. But right here, right now, what we should be doing is looking at those apprenticeship opportunities because there's probably money sat there waiting to be exploited. But how do you do it so that you reach out to people who are different to the ones that you've got in your current teams? And when we talk about diversity, I'm not just talking about, but obviously I clearly come from a ethnically diverse background, but it's not just ethnic diversity. I'm really clear around neurodivergent talent and the creativity they bring people with a disability and the lived experience they they bring. So diverse teams deliver much better results. You'd have to listen to me say that actual stats of evidence. I love that. And then I guess you're moving on to those practical things we could be doing. And I'm definitely going to take that challenge away to have a look at our apprenticeship levy in our organisation and see what we can do in that space from a communications point of view. But I guess some of the people listening to this podcast will be in leadership roles so they can take that sort of action but some people listening are likely to be aspiring to the next step in their communications career and maybe feel a little bit like I don't feel like I have the opportunity or the power to do some of that sort of thing but is there a practical thing that people listening to this podcast could do today or tomorrow to encourage people to consider a career in public sector comms do you think? Consider a career in public sector comms I would say there's communities sat on your doorstep who you could reach out to. There's HR teams. If you work in a large provider organization who do recruitment events, why is there not a comms and involvement stand? I love that. That is really practical. There's no arguing with that. That could take one person out of your team to do that, couldn't it, in terms of looking how we recruit and where we recruit from. Trying to find a clever quote, so apologies, it looks as I'm doing something else, but... (laughs) No, I love uh, a clever quote. But I'm going to come to it towards the end, if that's okay, if I find it. um... If you find it, I love it. We have talked a lot about recruitment, and I'm going to take us on a slight tangent. We talked a lot about recruitment because obviously some of this conversation is about how we attract people into a career in communications in the public sector but once they're in how do we keep them here because I feel privileged enough that I've reached a fairly senior level in my comms career and a lot of that has been done working in the NHS and I've been very well supported to do that but obviously there are only a finite number of senior comms roles in the NHS that's probably a whole other podcast episode about how we feel about some of that so how do we keep people when people are being dangled the carrot of moving into the private sector for more money or maybe less stress because the NHS is a very 
sort of political place to work and of interest in. How do we retain good comms people in the NHS shack? And I'm throwing that one in as a bit of an unprepared question. No, that's fine. And I think it's a great question. There's something about showing and demonstrating that you will develop them to get them ready for their next role. I always talk about sometimes when I challenge members of my team, I'm not challenging you because I'm trying to be difficult, but I want you when you go into that interview room to be the best person, to be able to demonstrate the range of abilities you bring into that role. So when we talk about developing people, it's really critical that we look at different ways. So are we giving them enough work to keep them going nine to five? Are we giving them enough that stretches them? Are we offering people an opportunity to lead pieces of work? Make mistake, probably don't make the same mistake twice because that tends to suggest maybe we need to find out how we learn from those mistakes. And then there's something about what opportunities exist in our wider system. So are there shadowing opportunities? Are there opportunities? Again, I know HR people have to work really hard and we have to work with bound by HR law, but is there a way of offering short-term secondment opportunities into other teams so you understand different environments? So again, when you when that opportunity presents itself, to, to take on a, a role that's a step above the one you're on now, you've got the opportunity to show how you will shine. And I think there's something about the theme that always comes out for me is giving people a chance. Yeah, I love that. That's definitely a strong theme with you, Shaq. And I could talk to you probably all afternoon about this, and I'm sure we've spent lots of time talking about this before, but I'm conscious that our listeners might well be listening to this while they're on a run or doing some ironing and or whatever they're doing when they listen to the podcast and are probably like ready for us to wrap up a bit now. There was a kind of question that I wanted to pose to you, which is really unfair because I didn't give you any prep time for this question, Shaq, but a lot of conversations I have with other communications leaders is about what would be different if comms people ruled the world. And that might be a bit grand because maybe ruling the world is too much. But if a comms person was in charge tomorrow, what do you think would be different and in a good way? What would a comms person bring to that mix if they were the chief decision maker? Probably two things. One, I always call it the unwelcome mirror. So being really strong in terms of those decisions, the, the decisions we're making and taking, are they the right ones? And giving that real sense check and bringing in all our stakeholders. What is the impact on all our stakeholders? That's something that we bring that maybe others might not, that, or they will in a different way to us. And I think, uh, again, I don't want to say other professions don't, but that links to maybe some of the common sense approaches to some of the problems we face. So those are two things. And comms is a strategic business function. So we bring the level of insight because we're getting it from lots of sources. So somebody somewhere needs to collect that and turn it into more manageable data. So that, that's a skill set in itself. Brilliant. Thank you, Shaq. Sorry, I threw that one in as a bit of a curveball question. I appreciate you. I appreciate you thinking on the spot to answer that one. So have you found your, your quote that yeah, you were going to uh, end with, Shaq? I, I so found, over to you. But I'm, I've got the F-bomb in there, so I'm going to take it out because I just realised. <laughs> um, I'm not going to say who said it because I've just mentioned there was an F-bomb on this, but I was at an event and somebody just said this and I thought this is so true of everything we've said today and that was get out of your comfort zone and go and change the world there could be no better ending to this podcast episode than that Shaq so I don't want to ruin it but I am in total agreement so I'm going to echo that advice to anybody listening and I know it's something that you're doing on pretty much a daily basis with you and your team Shaq so 
Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. I hope people have found it useful and I'm sure this will be a conversation we continue at a future date. So thank you so much for your time, Shaq. Thank you as well, Carrie-Anne. Thank you for all the work you're doing as well. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Bob. I'd love for you to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave a rating or a review. You can also engage with me over on the socials. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at catspjs underscore UK. Catch up soon.